Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another interview for Technology Uncorked. My name is Jeff Quattromani, and today we have a really fascinating interview with Australia's e-safety commissioner, Julie Inman-Grant. Now, uh, Julie is no stranger to technology, having worked in public policy safety roles with Microsoft, Twitter, and Adobe, to name a few. Now, the e-safety office is the first government agency committed to keeping its citizens safer online. And with everything going on, with COVID-19, people working from home, kids having to do schooling from home, we are far from actually being back to normal. So I wanted to have a chat with Julie to talk about what is happening with everyone being online. What are the impacts that's happening? Because you know what? If you've got kids in school, yes, there's bullying that happens in the schoolyard. But when you take that all online, what does that now look like? Especially since the schoolyard is also virtual now. So a lot of questions I had for Julie. I I'm am, am, am a parent. I don't have it as my son's not in school yet, but I know plenty of people who have kids who are asking their parents about TikTok, asking their parents about all these different apps and things like that. So we have a great conversation with Julie lined up for you today. A massive thank you to, to Julie as well for spending the time with us to talk about this, what I think is a very important issue, not just about juniors, as in kids getting online, but what about senior citizens as well? You know, the elderly people in our lives who are potentially experiencing the internet for the first time as well. So ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this uh, really, really insightful interview with Julie Inman-Grant. Now, Julie, this year has seen probably the biggest change in how we work, and this has you know, impacted our online behaviors the most. What have you seen and, and how are you personally coping with these changes as well? Right. Well, it's certainly turned the world on its head. And we, I think we need to be grateful for the fact that the internet was already a fairly integral part of our everyday lives. Um, but obviously, it's become more ingrained. It has enabled us to continue working, to continue connecting, um, continue learning. Um, and there's still a lot for us to learn as we're, we're learning and working and commuting. But uh, I, I think this will be our new normal, to use the very hackneyed term, for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, it doesn't look like, um, you know, getting through this particular pandemic is going to be um, a linear uh, progression. Um, and so I think we're going to, you know, we're, we're using the internet really as an essential utility. Um, and so what I think we need to continue doing is making sure we're providing the right kind of guidance to Australians so that they can continue to maximize the benefits whilst minimizing the risks. And, you know, no question about it, we've created um, the perfect storm um, for a, for a powder, powder keg in that um, you've got people who are frustrated, who may be lonely, who may be frustrated. And we're definitely seeing a lot of this playing out online. We've seen an immense surge in reports into our office across our range of regulatory schemes from youth-based cyberbullying, where we saw 150% increase in the month of June alone, to um, a huge increase in image-based abuse, which is the non-consensual sharing of intimate images and videos, um, colloquially known as revenge porn. We don't use that terminology because it's inherently victim-blaming and it isn't always about revenge or relationship retribution. In mm. fact, you know, it makes sense that more people are turning to digital intimacy tools 
as they as we're potentially separated um, from our partners and, and loved ones. And over the Easter long weekend, we saw a 600% surge of reports into our office around image-based abuse, largely tied to a major sextortion scam that's been running for uh, the past couple of years, but there was a concerted organized campaign by uh, by scammers, um, ostensibly organized criminals, um, to um, prey upon these fears, let people um, think that they may have hacked into their webcams and hard drives and have um, images that they were and videos that they were threatening to share. Wow. Just, just, a, just a few small figures there. That's that's astonishing. Um, and and you mentioned, you know, that, that there's a, a role that you guys certainly play in this. And I think I think everybody, even um, sometimes myself, when I when I talk about technology or talk about you know trends, whether it's on radio or even on this podcast, you know, trying to educate people around around the right way to to use the internet, it seems like it's a job for everybody in some cases as well. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a responsibility we all have to share. And really, when you think about it, society is operating and fully functioning online. So we need to make sure that um, all of the elements and all of the, the players are, are, are working in tandem and making sure that this is a much less toxic and a, a safer environment. I mean, I, th- I think there certainly are analogies from the real world to the online world. We're never going to totally eradicate crime in the real world, and we're never going to totally eradicate the kinds of abuse and sharing of illegal and harmful content that, that we're seeing online here, too. You may have seen in earlier stories that we had done, um, seeing a lot of activity um, in pedophile forums um, uh, you know, around um, sharing of information about how to groom young children online, um, because you know the the incidence of people, including young children who are unsupervised online, has has increased. Um, we've seen um, the uh, largest number of reports and investigations we've ever done in the child sexual abuse um, area, about thirteen thousand five hundred um, at 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 last count. So there are some real, there are some really um, pointy risks that we all need to be mindful of. Um, but I also look at this as an opportunity, uh, particularly for those of us as parents. Our, our, our recent um, COVID research has shown us that something like 54% of Australians are using the internet and technology more le- readily, but 40% have experienced um, what we call <clears throat> negative online experiences. Mm-hmm. And we've we've seen in particular a tremendous amount of stress for those parents who are trying to work, educate, and care give simultaneously um, while they're sustained in lockdown vis-a-vis those people um, who don't have children. Yeah. And and when you when when you touched on the fact that you've seen these large increases in in people coming to you because they they are suffering these these different types of abuse, what what is the process there that that they come to the website and they can and they can make a claim or they can try and submit um, something that's happening? How do, how does somebody go about? It? I mean, personally, if I if I was experiencing something like that, where would I go? Right. Well, you would go right to esafety.gov.au, and that's where all our tips, advice, resources, and reporting schemes are. So um, 
if I could just kind of break down um, e-safety, who we are, what we do and how we do it, um, obviously prevention is key. Um, yeah. But we know that long-term meaning behavior, meaningful behavioral change takes a long time um, to happen. And, and only about 40% of Australians um, know that e-safety exists. We've actually had um, a huge peak of interest um, over COVID. We've, we've been doing our business as usual, but pushing very, very hard to get um, get out as much information as possible to parents and carers, uh, to educators who are learning to navigate this on, uh, online world um, and deliver remote education, which is not what they learned in pre-service training, um, to making sure that older Australians, which are, um, whom are already the least represented population on, on online, um, mm -hmm. so the vast majority of, of those Australians 65 and over have um, low digital literacy. So um, trying to make sure that um, they know how to be connected so that they are not suffering from isolation um, so they're connecting through things like FaceTime and Zoom themselves so that they're learning how to connect to MyGov and government services, including telehealth, learning how to online shop and online bank. These are things that we, we I suppose, who grew up um, with a greater degree of technology in schools or in our workplace take for granted, really. Um, but mm -hmm. there's a whole range of um, Australians, you know, about 4 million who have low to no digital literacy skills at all. Um, and they are the ones that are having to self-isolate because of their risk profile with respect to, to coronavirus. And, and, and the abuse that we, that we do see often online tends to happen on a particular platform. And, and if we call out, say, say Facebook or Twitter, you know, it's, it's a place where a lot of people live um, and a lot of this type of abuse can, can happen. Do you, do you think that the platforms themselves uh, are doing enough to, to keep people safe, given that if they're, if they're coming to, to you in terms of uh, issues that they're experiencing, is that a failure on their part that they're not resolving it quickly themselves? Right. I, I, I've, I didn't get to the regulatory part of what we do and what I would call the protection area of, of e-safety. So if people do go to esafety.gov.au, we have a number of legislated reporting schemes. The first is youth around youth-based cyberbullying. Now, we know that bullying has been around from time immemorial, and one in four uh, Australian children have been bullied face-to-face. With cyberbullying, we see one in five young Australians being cyberbullied online, and this is almost always an extension of conflict that's happening peer-to-peer -peer and um, extending into the online world um, beyond what's happening within the school gates. So what's it particularly insidious about this, of course, is that um, it is very vulnerable to one's, per, uh, one's peers. So whether it's on Snap or Instagram, um, which tends to be the, the places that most young Australians um, are on. So we see the, mm. the higher um, proportion of um, online abuse targeting young people. It's very visible to peers, but, but educators and parents um, are often oblivious, don't know that it's happening unless they start having online conversations with them. So we were set up precisely for that reason as a safety net to help support young people, um, either through the direct reports to us after they have reported to the social media site. We know that a lot falls 
within the cracks or through the cracks. If you think about the fact that Facebook has 2.4 billion users getting millions of reports every day and the content moderators have 30 seconds to a minute to look at a single post or a tweet and decide whether or not that contravenes their terms of service. Of course, these are American-based companies. They're going to err on the side of freedom of expression. So Mm. a lot does fall through the cracks. And traditionally, there's been a huge power disparity between the the big tech behemoths and um, the young Australians. So we're able to advocate on their behalf, reach out directly to the the, uh, social media sites, give them that context, um, and and we can compel them to take down um, serious cyberbullying content. So that's contents that's seriously harassing, intimidating, uh, humiliating, um, or threatening. So it's a fairly high bar. Um, and, it, and thus far, we've had a 100% success rate in terms of compliance, in terms of getting this content down. Say the same thing with image-based abuse. We've got a separate reporting scheme and a, sep- a separate set of um, civil penalty tools, as well as a separate uh, team that deals with these cases. We've got a 90% success rate in terms of getting um, intimate images and videos removed from the internet from more than 150 sites located around mm-hmm. the world. And then, of course, we've got um, our cyber report team that takes in, uh, and that's really our largest reporting scheme in terms of overall volume and numbers. Um, Anything around illegal and harmful content, whether it's pro-terrorist content or child sexual abuse material, um, that team, the cyber report team, also deals um, with um, our abhorrent violent material powers. We have new powers in the wake of the Christchurch um, tragedy. Um, we, we know that um, one of the tools that extremists of any stripe um, are trying to, to use technology to um, make their heinous crimes go viral to further incite hatred and terrorism through, through manifestos, through the posting of, of these videos. And we've got notification powers to compel the takedown of that material and um, in the event of a crisis event, we also have ISP blocking powers that we um, use with great discretion. All oh, right, okay, and it's amazing to sort of to hear. First of all, the success rate, because I think that's something that um, I had no idea it was. It was so so good in terms of you know if if something does happen, how much you guys can can act upon it as well. And it's it's amazing to hear that. Well, thank you, thank you. Where the- we're currently the only government agency in the world that's that's doing this. Um, but I guess I would say, so we know how important it is to remove harmful content and to remove it expeditiously. Obviously, the longer that content's up there, the more harm and, and devastation it causes to the target. Mm. Um, but we also have a series of pro, uh, programs and initiatives around what we call proactive change. So... Um, you know, we're going to continue using our research team to develop the evidence and develop the resources to prevent the harms from happening in the first place. We're going to use our investigative and regulatory powers to take down the harmful content. But to a certain degree, we're playing a game of whack-a-mole because um, one, we're, we're actually just helping after the harm has been done. So what are the things that we can do 
to minimize the risks risks in the um, the threat environment going forward. So one of our key um, initiatives is around safety by design. And um, in 2019, we sat down with about 60 stakeholders, including the major platforms themselves, to talk about um, principles and good guidance and best practice. But when you think about it, when we get into our cars today, we expect uh, that our seatbelts are going to be effective, our brakes are going to work, it, they'll be, um, they'll have airbags in them. Um, and, but it wasn't until the 70s and 80s that seatbelts were actually uh, legislated by, by law, but now they're governed by international standards. And, you know, you won't get into a car today without those safety uh, protections built in. And we believe those same safety protections should be built into the technology platforms themselves. Well, we and they are well, are well aware of the range of harms that can happen online. So why aren't we demanding that they build these protections in, assess the risks up front, rather than bolting the safety protections on after something happens and the damage has been done? or in response to reputational revenue or regulatory concerns. So really we're talking about trying to change the ethos of the way that technology is designed, developed and deployed, you know, moving from that ethos of moving fast and breaking things because the detritus uh, on that information superhighway ends up being the user themselves. Um, and and to have them shift the responsibility back on the technology companies to be assessing the risk, building in the protections, um, providing the guidance, making sure that um, the reporting tools um, and functions are working, um, and that they're continuing to invest and innovate uh, for safety going forward. And it's and it's important that you mention that too because. You know the, the internet itself is is relatively young, and I think you know we we ran so fast, and social media became such a big thing so quickly that the safety component has has become a bit of an afterthought, and it's and it's important now to sort of go back and people who are coming to be new to the internet that they're being equipped with these tools and the knowledge to be safe online. And when I think about um, the COVID pandemic that we're in. And all of the students suddenly being told to go home and do education from home, that was a shift that probably no one was properly prepared for. And I was wondering, from an e-safety point of view, uh, what might have been learned from all of, all of a sudden students no longer in the, in the yard, they're all working from home or should have been um, you know, educating from home? What worked and, and what didn't work? I mean, I'm trying to think about this potentially happening again. Um, where you know kids will have to go back to, to homeschooling. Are there things that, that we could do differently to, to prepare for this next time? Um, well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because in February of this year, we had worked for about 18 months with um, all the state, territory, and federal departments of education, with, with the education community um, in general, be, because they're such an important conduit to reaching um, young people. And because um, we have been teaching technology skills in the classroom for a long time, but we haven't necessarily integrated online safety or digital citizenship education um, into the curriculum curriculum or throughout um, a child's educational journey. Of mm. course, it varies from uh, state to state because that's where uh, you know a lot of the curriculum is set. So we, in February, announced um, an online toolkit for schools, 
which was all about um, how do schools put the right policies in place? Um, how do they how do they educate online? How do they engage um, the whole community? So students, parents being part of that community. Um, how do they deal with online incidents when they happen? Um, for a long time, teachers have served the role as you know, a psychologist, as a social worker, um, sometimes as um, you know, counselor in other ways. Um, but increasingly, we've been asked them to arbitrate online disputes, and they've never been trained that way, let alone um, been given pre-service or professional um, learning around how to teach um, remote through remote education yeah. um, and different pedagogies are, are required. So we've probably reached um, a, about a half million teachers um, with pre-service training and professional uh, learning that we um, deliver over webinars. And we've never had um, a huger uptake from parents or teachers in terms of, uh, for teachers in spe specifically, what are the things they need to know? How do they engage students? Um, how do they control um, you know, the features um, and functionality on Zoom, for instance, um, you know, if, if an incident um, happens or a Zoom bombing incident, which actually did happen with a Catholic primary school in England. Yeah. But there were a bunch of young kids that were exposed to somebody who had taken over the call, started ranting, and shared um, terrorist content. And that's, it sounds funny, but how damaging um, and confronting for that um, group of young people. Um, and so, you know, Zoom is, it has been a really interesting, um, they've been an internet darling in some ways, because uh, in December, few of us had heard of Zoom True. Uh, outside of Silicon Valley. They had 10 million daily users. By April of this year, it is ostensibly as a result of the pandemic, they had 300 million daily users. So they scaled beautifully technically in terms of being able to uh, continue to deliver their services at that rate, but they started having the Zoom bombing. Um, they, um, there, were, there were lots of questions about safety, privacy, and security to the extent that their CEO stood up and said, oh, wow, well, I'd never really thought about online harassment before until this happened. Which many of us would think would be surprising, yeah. uh, but that's precisely what he said, and then we take him at his word, but he said, we're taking things offline and we're going to go back and um, build, uh, we're going to build encryption into this. We're going to um, require passwords. We're going to do another number of things in the safety and privacy and security space to shore this up because the New York Department of Education said teachers were no longer allowed to teach classes over Zoom, um, defense departments around the world, um, organizations like ours um, were no longer allowed to use Zoom because of these um, perceived weaknesses. So really companies need to be thinking about how important these elements are to you know, establishing fundamental trust with um, their user base it's very much tied to commercial imperatives and will continue to be more so in the future. 
And so what we're, we're building right now um, in conjunction with a lot of industry feedback is um, what we're calling an internal assessment tool built upon the safety by design principles that um, any company, whether very mature with a lot of different product and service lines or um, a lighter version for startups, so they can take and they can they can run the tool and assess their level of risk and then get a sense of, of what you know what is what is good practice look like in terms of a terms of service? Um, do they need a trust and safety team or can they outsource their content moderation? What are the things and the tools that are out there that can help them make their users' experience safer, um, less toxic, and more positive? Because we can't continue what we've been doing in the past as, as the technology industry. And that's effectively been putting the burden for online safety on the users themselves. And and you mentioned Zoom earlier. And, and again, another app that people wouldn't have heard of potentially before the pandemic. And House Party is another one. Uh, and there are so many. And I had a, had a friend ask me the other day um, that his daughter, who's around seven or eight years old, um, asked if, if she could download TikTok. And start to get get onto that, and he said to me, "What is this thing? Should I be worried?" Um, and and I, I think he's a little bit lucky because at least he can ask somebody like myself or or go on on the internet to find out the answers. But when it comes to parents trying to not monitor, but you know, keep a, keep an eye on what their kids are doing and what apps they're using, what is what is the safest way for parents to go about that? Because you know, in in the old days, you just would stop someone from doing it entirely. Kids have become a bit more innovative than that now, and they can find ways around um, just a, a, a solid fist. Is there is, is there conversations that parents could have to try and understand these apps and and make a decision between the two of them? Uh, absolutely. Um, so one of our most um, sought after, I guess, parent tools uh, is our eSafety guide, um, which is again on our website at eSafety.gov.au, and it it it. It's basically we're updating it on a daily basis. Uh, it's got all the major games, apps, and uh, social media sites that kids are using. It goes through a consistent format, so you'll have the logo. A lot of a lot of parents will look over the kid's shoulder and see a purple icon or an orange one and won't know what it is. Um, but they can go up and they can identify it by looking at our site. Um, you know who's using it. What are the age? Um, Guide, what's, what is the age guidance? How do you turn on the safety and privacy settings? What are the benefits? What are the risks? So that's there. Also, in, in terms of our parent content, it, it, you're absolutely right. Um, this has to begin as a series of ongoing conversations that parents have with children. Um, we know that 81% of Australian parents are giving their children access to an interconnected digital device by the time they're four years old, and um, you know it, it. You know we're increasingly um, watching Disney Plus or U- YouTube uh, on um, on our iPads and the like. Um, but what we've had to point out to parents is that you know these tablets are connected to the internet. These aren't passive entertainment devices like the TV, where our parents mm. used. To down in front of the TV while they were making dinner. If we do that now without, um, for very young children, turning on the right um, parental controls and and um, settings, but also having conversations with them. We, we now have 
guidance for parents of um, under fives. And uh, so it's, it's, we want to start the good habits early. Um, and so the guidance there for parents is to talk to kids about um, how do we stay safe? How do we be kind? How do we ask for help? And how do we make good choices? And, um, and as we go up um, through our guidance throughout the age ranges, you know, even things like exposure to pornography, which we know happens um, as early as seven for for um, the average Australian boy, wow. um, is how do you have the conversations with um, children um, under eight about um, what they might come across online or what they might see online? And then how do you talk to them when they're between eight and 12? And then how do you talk to them when they're teens? Um, I don't think we can wait until their teenage years to talk to them about that. Um, it's interesting, your story, I've, I've got eight-year-old twins. Mm. And um, one of my own twins, I, I mean, TikTok is definitely going viral amongst the um, younger set. And um, there's some really fun and engaging content on there. Um, but, um, you know, one of my twins asked, you know, said her eight-year-old friend was on it. And I was like, what? That, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be on this until you're 13. This, this is the age guidance. Um, but I went and I had a look and there she was dancing with her dad. Um, oh, right. And I've, so again, so what the risk is here, again, that's good, good fun. You, you know, they had um, cute little videos there together, but these are what we call commingled platforms. So, um, you know, TikTok has teenagers, it has adults, it has chat functionality, as does Facebook. Um, and so they, there are good reasons we shouldn't be, and, you know, not to be scaremongering because that's not what we do, but, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't drop your eight, seven or eight-year-old off at the Bork Street Mall or the Pitt Street Mall um, and say, hey, just go wander around, see who you meet, see what you find. Um, here's my exactly. credit card. No, um, we'd make sure that they were properly supervised. And so we can't. Um, obviously, the physical dangers um, aren't, aren't as apparent, but um, there are risks to leaving children to their own devices on their devices um, without engaging them in conversations with what, what we now call the four R's of the digital age, respect, responsibility, um, building digital resilience with our children, because it's not a matter of if they're going, something's going to go wrong online, it's a matter of when, um, mm. also honing their critical reasoning skills, um, which, which can be used in a number of ways um, because we're seeing young people increasingly using impersonation and imposter accounts to bully, um, you know, what kids are seeing online in terms of porno um, pornography is not like the penthouse your dad put in a sock drawer, it's in incre increasingly uh, violent and extreme, um, you know, so how does a young people person discern whether or not, you know, these are two actors in engaging in an act, this is not what a respectful relationship looks like. And of course, those skills will certainly be useful in this age of disinformation and misinformation and fake news. 
and then I guess on the on the other end of the spectrum, you know, seniors are now being asked to join family video calls. They're having to learn how to do online banking or shopping because it's, um, you know, especially during these times, it's harder for them to be going out to do those things. I've noticed that the the e safety office has a huge amount of um, avenues and resources for them as well. Right, we've got 144 different modules um, tar- uh, for um, Aust- older Australians through our Be Connected um, program, and we work with an NGO called the Good Things Foundation um, that has more than 3,000 um, sites on the ground um, that they've been using because you can't teach seniors the same way um, and engage them in the same way that you do young children. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of research and a lot of focus group work and a lot of, um, you know, psychological understanding about how, how we get um, older people to engage um, with the content, even using different fonts and different colors and um, voiceovers um, and really demystifying, but also um, driving old, older Australians and, uh, you know, I should say that Australians over the age of 65 are the least represented population online with a large proportion having um, low to no di- digital literacy. So in many cases, we've had to start from scratch. Um, right before the pandemic hit, we were um, rolling out a new program that we'd piloted very successfully called Be Connected Young Mentors. Because increasingly older Australians will ask their own children or grandchildren for help in terms of how do I get online? How do I, what's a browser? How do I get onto the internet? You know, how do I get on Skype? How do I get on Zoom? And so a lot of that was taking place um, intergenerationally, if you will. And um, so we, we wanted to kind of institutionalize some of that by bringing young people into aged care facilities or older people into schools to facilitate that um, intergenerational learning. Obviously, we can't do that. So we're trying to facilitate that intergenerational learning and support online. I mean, really, for older people, it's about building their confidence and uh, reducing their their fears. I mean, security and safety is a huge impediment um, for um, older Australians getting online. But, you know, sadly, we also see that when they do get online, older Australians are come from a much more trusting generation. So they're more likely to be socially engineered and fall prey to scams. And that's, and that's going to be one of the biggest, biggest concerns with, with the seniors. I have one more question actually around, around the the more younger kids actually. And, you you know, you talked a lot about how much um, the e-safety offices is helping, you know, in in terms of pulling down images and things like that, that that they are facing internally, your, your team, must be obviously at the coalface of this stuff. How, how do they cope mentally as well? Because they're seeing so much, I mean, especially when you talk about the increase um, over recent months, how does, how does your team sort of stay mentally okay with, with everything that is going on? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for acknowledging that. I really think about uh, the people on our investigative teams are heroes and heroines. Um, first yeah. of all, they they all they all sit together in um, what we call the hotline room. It's it's a secure room to prevent other people from being exposed. But we have um, well deve- developed evidence based well being programs in in place. Uh, we have um, psychologists um, coming in on a fairly regular basis to make sure that that 
the team members individually okay, that they're functioning well as a team. Um, I've put a huge amount of um, resource up front into making sure that we're building um, technology tools and infrastructure that help um, mask the amount of content that they actually see. Um, so we've got a whole new investigative platform that allows them to be more effective and more efficient without being exposed. And there, there's some really um, good science, science out there about particularly for our investigators that are looking at um, child sexual abuse material um, and have their own children, you can imagine how um, confronting that is. Uh, but mm -hmm. there's research um, around, um, you know, if they play games, online games like Tetris and only certain kinds of games, they can minimize the um, those images being lodged in their long-term memory. Um, so we, you know, we have games in there, we have scheduled breaks. Um, so lots of precautions are taken to make sure that um, we are building resilience um, and um, well-being into our programs. It's so important. And, and, and you're right. I do think that, you know, these guys are as as important as as your police, as your fireies, as your ambulance, even though they're probably behind the scenes and uh, people don't actually see them. The, the work that they do is is no doubt um, anywhere anywhere less important. So it's important. It's it's it's, a, it's an important one to call out, uh, especially the things that they do have to deal with every day. Now, now, Julie, the the rest of the questions are really just about you. Um, I'd love to sort of get to know your your tech life a little bit better, and is is what we tend to call it. And I've got about seven questions. There's no wrong answers. Um, and look, the the first thing I'd love to know is what is your favorite app to keep you organized. Oh my gosh! Um, I, I think I need a bespoke app developed to um, organize um, me. Um, you know, I yeah. I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna pass on that. I can't say that there's any um, one app that that helps me me do that. Um, you know, I am a harried working mom of five kids. You know, running a world first government agency, and I just took the silly step um, that I'm, I'm sure I will never regret of um, capitulating to the puppy pandemic and um, getting an eight, eight, eight month, eight week old puppy named Tucker that we've been love that. the household. So that's just um, something new. <laughs> just, just something extra to keep you entertained in the meantime, right. as if there wasn't enough. That's right. And, and what's your favorite social media app then? Oh, favorite social media app. Well, I did work at Twitter um, for a, a, a few years and I, you know, I do find it um, really helpful um, professionally. Um, it, it, you know, it helps, you know, that's how I consume, all, you know, a lot of my news, how I connect with people. Um, I, you know, I, of course, love um, Facebook for connecting with friends and family overseas. I mean, I think like a lot of people, the the different um, tools um, that I use for, in terms of social media, um, they fulfill different sides of yeah. um, and different interests, um, and I'm engaging with different people in very different ways. No, that makes sense. And when you do have five minutes to spare between meetings, what's the first thing that you do on your phone? On my phone, uh, probably. Um, reach out to family members. Um, I, I do spend a lot of time on my um, morning commutes 
um, again, as scrolling through social. I mean, it's really important um, based on what we do to be really across trends, what's, you know, what's happening online, what are the latest memes, you know, it's really it, it's 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 really hard to do this job if you don't have a situational awareness of what's happening online. Do you wear a smartwatch or a traditional timepiece? I wear a traditional timepiece. Okay, okay. And when you used to fly, when we used to get on airplanes, um, did you use the in-flight infotainment system, or would you bring your own device? In-flight entertainment, absolutely. Okay. And what do you love to do to disconnect? I mean, to get away from everything. What's your favorite thing to do? run um and um i'm very fortunate to be up in sydney um near the spit to manly walk um so i love being i feel like um you know i'm out in nature and away from it all um i do my best thinking on my runs uh but i obviously love spending time with my kids and i love cooking up a culinary feast Oh, nice, nice. And this show is called Technology Uncorked. Now we have the interview show, and then I also have a show where I talk about the news and reviews uh, around tech every week. I usually have a glass of wine during that show. Uh, if we were sitting down for a, for a drink today, Julie, what would be your go-to? I'm totally into gin and tonics right now. Um, yeah. My husband just got me for my birthday gingerbread gin. And really? Yeah, it's 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 um it's from um a, a, a distiller in Collingwood, but I'm also a big fan of um, Manly Spirits, um, the local uh, distillery. Um, but yeah, I find it really refreshing. I I do love a good red myself, but I do find the sulfites can um, make me feel a little dusty in the morning. Yeah, I agree. I love the idea of gingerbread gin. That's that's going straight on the list. You sh- you should look it up. You, I think you can um, you can use the internet and go right to Dan Murphy's. <laughs> awesome, awesome! Thank you so much for coming on the show, Julie. It's been it's been extremely insightful and in some ways shocking, but I think that's also important to understand just how much good work you guys are doing. Oh, thank you so much! Thanks so much for the opportunity, and keep up your good work too.